One of the great moments in church history happens when Martin Luther, this um, Augustinian monk who has been struggling with his own faith, has a spiritual breakthrough in the tower of the Wittenberg Monastery where he's been living. It comes as he is rereading the book of Romans, which he is teaching at the local university. The key passage for Luther turns out to be Romans 1.17, which reads, For the gospel... For in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed, a righteousness that is by faith from the first to last, just as it is written, the righteous will live by faith. So as a medieval uh, Catholic in a church that everyone will agree has uh, stumbled because of corruption, uh, Protestants and Catholics will uh, disagree on the specifics to be sure, but at this point, everyone will agree that the medieval Catholic Church has problems. So as a monk in that system, Luther believes that we're washed free of sin at baptism. And at that point, like a you know car coming out of the car wash, we are clean, all is good. But after more sin, um, we have to work hard in order to work off the temporal effects of sin. So we go to a priest for confession for the eternal um, ramifications, and we are saved, but there is penance to do. So uh, we have to work this off. And so we go to a priest in confession, and the priest will hear our confession and then absolve us of our, uh, of our eternal guilt, but then we'll say, okay, you need to do something, and, and uh, the, the something is going to vary. The, the, word, um, the, the word that is used here for penance is later going to be um, perhaps more accurately translated out of the Greek um, for repentance. So remember that one of the things that is happening when we get into the Renaissance Everyone is looking back to the sources, ad fontes. They're going back to the original languages. And so you have a lot of these reformers who are going to be looking back at the Greek text. And um, so like Luther, they have, others will have learned Greek and Hebrew, and they will be, be arguing that they get a more accurate understanding of what the text means in, in these original uh, languages than they do from the Latin Vulgate translation they've been using. So Luther is coming to realize that the word um, that the word that he has understood as penance and these acts to be done is more rightly understood as repentance. And that the penance that he's being told to do, you know, whether it's to say the rosary or the Lord's Prayer or go to Mass or go on a pilgrimage or go to a relic or give alms, which would be money beyond the 10% uh, tithe that's expected. Um, if he, the Roman Catholic system at the time is saying if you do those things, then, then you are you're up to speed. You're not going to carry sin into purgatory that you're going to have to have purged in purgatory. So Luther has been zealously engaged in this system. Uh, he's taken a vow of poverty and celibacy in order to become a monk. Uh, he, has, um, he goes to confession regularly, sometimes for hours at a time. He prays seven times a day. He has made pilgrimages. He is working the system hard. Luther will say, if ever a monk was going to be saved by monkery, it was him. But he doesn't have any sense that things are right with his soul. 
he has, um, he has a sense that he's far from God and unaccepted, and he wrestles with what he calls um, his Anfektungen. I'm not sure my high school German is, is going to carry us forward there. It's a relatively untranslatable term that means something along the intersection of anxiety, fear, anger, depression, OCD. It's, uh, it's sort of a, a mix of these things. He has, been, he has been trying to become righteous under his own strength. As he studies Romans, he, he has this breakthrough, Romans 1, 17, he has this breakthrough and he realizes that, uh, that he's been understanding this passage incorrectly. Partly because he's also now, you know, as a monk, he is, he is going through the Psalms every month, uh, all 150 of them, and he, he knows that Psalm 13 has this passage that talks about the fact that we are delivered by God's righteousness. And so he had been thinking that, that in Christ, the righteousness of God was revealed in Christ. Meant that's the standard. Okay, this is how good I have to be. Jesus is the template. I have to be that. And I have to be that by living by faith, by doing all this penance and all these other things. He suddenly comes to understand that, uh, that Jesus is not the, the standard of righteousness. That's not what this is saying. That Jesus is our righteousness. That we are saved by an alien righteousness. He doesn't use that word alien yet, but he will use it later on. We are, we are gonna be justified, we're gonna be reconciled to God through the work of Jesus Christ that gets imputed back to us. So uh, Christianity is not about us, it's not this I do, it is this he did. We are saved on the basis of the work Christ does for us. We have inherited this sin from the first Adam. We are able to, uh, to adopt, to have transferred to our account the righteousness of the second Adam. And this changes everything. It will take a while for this to sink in, but it's going to set in motion the, the other things that are going to unfold. So that's a big moment. A, a second big moment um, happens of course, when Luther nails his 95 Theses to the door of the Castle Church in Wittenberg, Germany, uh, it is his call to debate uh, indulgences, which has um, gone to new levels under the indulgence hawker Tetzel, who mentioned in the last episode. Uh, third big uh, pivotal moment around the Reformation happens at the Diet of Worms, which comes uh, a few years later, when Luther who is um, now in significant trouble for his writings in addition to his preaching and teaching. Um, he's been attacking indulgences, but he's been going beyond that. Other mistakes he thinks the church is making. He's sideways with the powers that be, and uh, he ends up being charged with heresy and put on trial uh, in front of a church, uh, in front of the church leaders, and then died of worms in front of the emperor himself. This is where he's told he must recant, and uh, he issues his made-for-TV line, you know, that he's uh, not going to do it. By the way, the, the movie that came out about Luther 10 years or so ago is, is worth seeing. Uh, but the line that he supposedly says at this point is, unless I'm convicted by proofs from Scripture or by plain and clear reasoning arguments, I cannot uh, retract. It's neither safe nor wise to do so. Here I stand, so help me God, I can do no other. 
So that's what most people think happened, but that's not exactly the way it happened, and I'm getting a little ahead of myself. So let me back up. This is the second of three lectures that I'm going to give on the Reformation, this massively significant revolution that not only changes the church, it changes politics, it changes nation states, it changes economics, it changes the family, uh, marriage, education, music, it, it is big. Um, as I noted in the previous pod podcast, this topic is so big that although I have covered many other big topics, such as uh, Augustine and the fall of Rome and the Crusades and the Great Schism, I covered those in one lecture. And I, I have only gone to two lectures for the Renaissance. Uh, I'm giving three to the Reformation. So in the previous podcast, number 35, we looked at the medieval church, this concept of penance, uh, and we tracked young Luther uh, from his birth up to the Diet of, of Worms that I just mentioned. Uh, this was a journey that had led him away from a career in law um, and, um, and, and into, because of a thunderstorm, it led him uh, eventually into a rigorous monastery where he's trying to work out his salvation, trying to keep it. He's trying, at that point, to not lose his salvation. Um, throughout this series, we have noted that there were always people trying to reform the church. Uh, the, the whole monastic movements, all these different orders had been established in order to try and reform the church, something that is in, needs to continually happen. Uh, one of the things I noticed the last time was that the Augustinian order that Luther joined, so it's a monastic order, um, as opposed to the Benedicts or the Franciscans or the Jesuits or whoever, uh, at this moment the Augustinian order is an, is an order that is very focused on education. So Luther's picked up a couple master's degrees and he's now a doctor uh, in theology. So in today's lecture, we are gonna follow Luther as he uses his uh, doctorate of uh, the Bible and attacks the system of indulgences, is eventually excommunicated by both the Pope and the Emperor, and uh, then things are gonna unfold after that. So we've looked at his birth and education, we've looked at his years in the monastery, including his breakthrough around the 95 Theses, uh, looked at uh, all of that in response to Tetzel. What we're going to focus on and really um, water ski over is uh, the Diet of Worms, his kidnapping and castle years, the Reformation itself, um, in which he's going to really start to give up on the Catholic Church and really start to try and um, launch something new. And uh, then I'm briefly going to cover his um, marriage and death and uh, then talk about a number of other things that you need to know about. In the third lecture, we're going to look at, at, at the, the basic theological underpinnings of uh, the Protestant churches going forward. So... Um, <laughs> This is, as I said, this is sort of a whirlwind. To squeeze this into three lectures is a little bit, uh, is a little bit challenging. But um, it all changes with this Reformation. It is a big turning point. So we've got our running start. You know about Luther. You know about Tetzel, the 95 Theses, the door uh, at the Castle Church. I, I have mentioned that the 15th century was crazy-making. 
the plague, the crusades, the Hundred Years' War, all that stuff. Uh, there's been corruption in the church. The Renaissance popes are acting like playboys. That's the 15th century. We're now moving into the 16th century. And uh, if the 15th century was crazy-making because of all the bad things that are happening, the 16th century is just crazy-making because of the pace at which everything is starting to change. The emergence of nation-states, explosion of knowledge coming out of the Renaissance, the beginnings of a modern economy, uh, the whole you know, age of discovery and all of that. So uh, we pick up with... Luther, with Luther. He has uh, had his dust up with Tetzel, who was hawking indulgences. He nailed the 95 Theses on the door uh, in response to this. As soon as a coin in the coffer rings, a, th- a soul from t- purgatory springs. Um, and now, suddenly, because, of, uh, because somebody's taken the 95 Theses off the door, translated them into German, taken them to Gutenberg's printing press, spread them all throughout Europe, Suddenly, Luther finds himself in trouble. It turns out he was wrong in thinking that the indulgences that Tetzel was hawking was just sort of Tetzel's idea. Indulgences were not what Luther is initially coming out against. He's coming out against the abuse of indulgences. So he saw indulgences as a further payment of alms. So you go to a priest, you confess your sin, he tells you what you've got to do, and you go, yeah, no, that's just not going to happen. I don't have time for that. Perhaps, again, you're a knight, uh, and you've been involved regularly in killing people, and the the number of things you're told you've got to do, you just say, I'm not going to get it done before I die. What can I do? The church would offer that you could pay additional alms. You could, uh, you could pay. You're giving this money to the church. And the idea is somebody is going to be paid to do your alms or to do your penance for you. You're not technically buying salvation. But that was a distinction lost on most people. And uh, Tetzel's just a particularly good salesman. So he's got his whole shtick down. Most people don't get what's going on. Uh, but in fact... Tetzel has the support of the Pope at this moment. So the, the Pope has is, is got a problem. St. Peter's Basilica, the St. Peter's Basilica, you go to the Vatican City today to see this massive building that's amazing, that you know, the dome's designed by Michelangelo and it's got the Sistine Chapel and all these just, it's, it's, it is this um, amazing building. That's not the St. Peter's Basilica that is in place at the time of Luther. The St. Peter's Basilica that is there uh, is one that is falling down. It had been built by Constantine. So you got to back up all the way, you know, back into the the early 4th century. And he had built St. Peter's Basilica over the place where lots of the Christian Martyrs, bodies had been thrown after they had been martyred, um, you know, in the Colosseum. So all these bodies have been taken out of the Colosseum. Those, you know, the remains of what had been fed to the lions or that had been killed by the gladiators are thrown in this spot. Constantine had built over that spot. Had built this uh, St. Peter's Basilica. 
So that was a long time ago. The building is falling down, and so uh, Pope Clement VII wants a new St. Peter's, but he doesn't have the money. Well, he is approached by Albert, who has just bought the uh, bishopric of Mainz. So this is a very important bishopric. He's now the Archbishop of Mainz. You know, the whole idea that, that these, these religious uh, offices could be bought, practice called simony, it's, it's, it's not in favor then. It's going to be, you know, banished later on. But he has bought the archbishopric. He, he had to borrow a lot of money in order to do so. So he's got uh, financial problems. And so he approaches Albert, the Archbishop of Mainz, approaches Pope Clement VII, and he says, here's a plan. You call for uh, a new sale of indulgences in uh, the Holy Roman Empire. I'll support you, and we can split the money. And nobody knows this at the time. We find this out later on. But uh, the campaign rolls out, and, um, and Tetzel just turns out to be one of the most effective salesmen. So Luther thinks Tetzel is just uh, abusing the system, and, that, and, and, and in the theses that he posts, he will say, look, we've got to stop this because this is uh, undermining the honor of the pope. He thinks the pope is behind it. He doesn't realize when he's trying to you know, stop this that, uh, that the Pope is actually behind it. By the way, it's not just Luther who thinks this is a bad idea. Frederick the Wise, whose name is going to come up later on, so file that one away. Frederick the Wise, also called Frederick of Saxony, also called Frederick the Elector. You've got to appreciate the way historians get together to make sure that all of this is easy. So this guy's got three different titles. Frederick. Frederick is also against uh, the, the sale of indulgences by Tetzel. Uh, now, he's against it <laughs> because he's got his own collection of relics, and people are having to go to pay money to him to see the relics. And so he didn't want Tetzel coming in selling an indulgence. Um, but all of this to say, Luther doesn't really understand what's going on, and he doesn't uh, understand who he's up against. And the Pope is very much in favor of what Tetzel is doing, and so he is going to uh, look to sort of put an end to those that are trying to stop Tetzel and his work. He can't go after Frederick uh, the Wise, and so he goes after Luther. So Luther has nailed these 95 theses to the door. They have gone viral, and uh, he's, he finds that he's in a bit of trouble. So what Luther does, as, this, as, as there seems to be this ruckus, by the way, we don't know whether or not Luther is part, uh, supportive in any way of, uh, of the, the theses being translated into German and then mimeographed and sent all over. We don't, we don't actually even know that Luther nailed the 95 theses to the door on October 31st, otherwise known as Halloween. Um, there's no um, quote-unquote smoking gun here. There's no, there's no uh, nothing that Luther says he do, he did it. Uh, he writes about it at any time. What we what we know is that on the morning of the 31st they're there. So either on the 30th, late, early on the morning of the 31st, but 
nobody seems to have seen this. So all these pictures that you'll see of Luther with this massive hammer and all this crowd standing around and Luther's nailing the theses and they're all aghast, like, oh my goodness, <laughs> that's not how it happened. Um, apparently, the, if you look at uh, art history, the hammer gets bigger through the years and so pretty soon it's just this sledgehammer that Luther's got. But um, the theses, again, Luther doesn't, doesn't sound that much like a Protestant at this time. He's, he considers himself a good Catholic monk. He's trying to put an end to, uh, the, to the abuse of the sale of indulgences. But suddenly, um, things are going wrong. And uh, he's getting in trouble, and there's a lot of buzz about this. So Luther decides he better uh, explain himself. And so he sends out a letter to the Archbishop of Mainz, uh, who's also on the take. Luther doesn't realize this. He sends a letter trying to explain himself and saying, you know, maybe I was a little heavy-handed, uh, but I'm a good guy. Uh, don't, don't come after me. Well, uh, Arth, um, Albert, the archbishop, sends this on to the pope, and the pope decides that he is going to go after Luther. So initially, they go after Luther indirectly, but Frederick the Wise is sort of protecting him. They also go after Luther directly they start to grill him. And Luther digs in his heels. You know, he's sort of shocked that they think that the abuse of the indulgence system is something okay. And so this forces Luther to keep studying, and the more he studies, the more strident his position becomes. So this is gonna lead to an important um, event, to a, to a, a debate uh, with, his arch, uh, with his arch nemesis, uh, Eck, and we call this the Leipzig Disputation. So Luther is called onto the carpet for what he has written. Uh, he's told that he's got to back down and that he's got to go explain himself at this, uh, at this special little um, gathering. So while he is debating uh, at the Leipzig, while he's debating Eck, Eck does something that perhaps uh, was brilliant. Luther doesn't see him, it coming. Um, he, doesn't, uh, he doesn't challenge Luther on indulgences. He doesn't challenge Luther on salvation. He argues that Luther believes that the Pope can err, that the Pope can make mistakes. And, um, and he sort of has Luther in a little bit of a corner and um, Luther had showed up to this um, disputation expecting that he was going to be debating, you know, 50 different uh, Catholic uh, theologians and that they were just going to be coming after him left and right. And he sort of had a strategy developed for that. Um, he really wasn't ready for the, the move that, uh, that is, is foisted on him. And so when X says, you know, you think the Pope can err, uh, Luther thinks about it for a little bit, and he says, uh, you know what? <laughs> You're right. I do think that if it's down between the Bible and the Pope, I think I'm going to go with the Bible. His exact words is he says, uh, ja, ich bin ein Hussite. So he says, uh, I am a Hussite. So he goes back. Remember, Jan Hus, along with Wycliffe, we had an episode on those two, Wycliffe, uh, died, but then his bones were, were I mean, he's, he's involved in getting the Bible into English. His, he's, um, 
his bones are exhumed and, he, and burned. Hus is somebody who actually is burned at the stake for uh, sort of being in the, in the, uh, the slipstream of Wycliffe. So now Luther is saying, yes, I am with Hus. I think he was right. So Ryan Reeves, um, uh, Cambridge, um, Cambridge PhD in church history, which is, a, he's a real historian. Again, I just play one on this podcast. Uh, in, uh, in something that I heard from him, he said, Luther saying to Eck, ja, ich bin ein Husite, it was sort of like going in front of McCarthy uh, in, the, in the, you know, the hearings and saying, yes, Senator McCarthy, as a matter of fact, I am a communist and I'm proud of it. So um, in 1519, so this is two years after the, the, the um, 95 Theses, Luther is served with a papal bull. So bull means it's, a, it's something with the, with the Pope's seal on it. It's this mandate. It's a special, special delivery from the Pope. And it's titled, uh, Rise Up, O Lord. These all have titles in Latin. This, this, I'm not, obviously, Rise Up, O Lord is not in Latin. This is not the bull of excommunication that Luther is going to get um, not too many months later. This is a document that tells Luther that he is in deep weeds and he must answer some questions or be condemned. Luther goes, famously, goes into the city square. <laughs> and because... Uh, the Catholic Church has burned Luther's books. Luther, uh, in front of everybody, burns this papal bull. So, um, and it, it was, uh, it, it, you know, if you read it, I mean, it's sort of Chicago street politics here, or, um, you know, NBA smack talk. I mean, uh, the Pope uh, calls Luther a wild boar from the forest whose tongue is a fire and who is setting, uh, who is destroying the church. And Luther is, is uh, if he hasn't yet, he's about to start calling the Pope the Antichrist. So uh, things are beginning to uh, ramp up. The next thing that happens is that uh, in 1520, Luther is excommunicated from the church. He's declared a heretic. Now, this is part one of the trial. So you've got this relationship between the church and state. So the church doesn't ever actually kill anybody. They sort of excommunicate people, and then they turn them over to uh, the, the state for a separate trial. And if the state decides that they are guilty, then, uh, then they're put to death. So uh, this way the church can sort of say it's not putting anybody to death. So what happens next is that Luther is going to be called to the diet of Worms. So in 1520, he's issued, um, uh, he's issued this order that he has to appear at this uh, imperial diet. So this is a big deal. This is a big confab. It's not just called for this. This is going to be all the princes in the area. It's going to be the, the Holy Roman Emperor himself is going to be there, and they're all going to meet in Worms. So Worms, Worms, whatever. It's a town in Germany. At the time, it has about 7,000 people. It's on the Rhine, just down from uh, Strasbourg. And, um, and so this, co this consultation is called the Diet. That's just the German word. So you've got the Diet of Worms. So cue the laughter. Um, 
most people trying to not say that, say diet of worms. You, the only time I think we try and go with the V for the W in German. Uh, but they're going to gather, 1521. Luther is 37 years old at the time. He's standing in front of Emperor Charles V, who is 21 years old at the time and is the, the most powerful person uh, in Europe, massively powerful. He, no one else has had as much power as, uh, as Charles has, unless you go back more than 700 years to Charlemagne. So now Luther is on trial before the government and he's on trial before the Holy Roman Emperor. So in he goes and um, they stacked all his books, everything that he has written uh, on this table. And there's so many there that, that uh, uh, Emperor Charles, among others, can't believe that one person has written all this stuff. Uh, but they've, they've stacked it all up, and they ask him if he's going to recant. Uh, and he says, here I stand, I can do no other. Uh, no, that's in the movie. Um, what he actually says is, uh, can I have another day to think about it? That's actually what he says, uh, which doesn't make anybody happy, uh, including the emperor, since they all sort of thought he should have he known he was going to get asked this question again. So the next day, he's got a night to spend uh, to spend. Um, in holding, and I think he, he's got all those writings there and he sort of reads through them and has a chance to sort of, um, you know, figure out what he's going to say. And this is what he says. I'm going to read this. Since then, your serene majesty and your lordship seek a simple answer. I will give it in this manner, neither horned nor toothed. Quote, unless I am convinced by the testimony of the scriptures or by clear reason, for I do not trust either in the Pope or in the councils alone, since it was well known that they have often erred and contradicted themselves. I am bound by the scriptures I have quoted, and my conscience is captive to the word of God. I cannot and I will not retract anything, since it is neither safe nor right to go against conscience. Here I stand, I can do no other. So this is a big moment. Uh, not just in church history, this is a big moment in Western civilization. A number of things are sort of immediately set in motion. First of all, Protestantism is born. Uh, right alongside that, perhaps we can say modernism is born as well. So the, the secretary of the council is going to... Um, is going to offer a stinging rebuke to Luther. And he's basically going to say, who do you think you are? Are you mad? Do you have any idea what you're doing? You're, you're pleading your conscience. And that sounds, oh, so well and good. But the, but the church and the councils have already ruled on so many of these things that you're contesting. Do you have any idea what kind of chaos we're going to live in if everybody gets to interpret the Bible for themselves? Do you have any idea what kind of chaos we're going to live in if everybody says, I'm going to act according to my conscience, not according to the government or according to the church? So um, this is part of what a lot of people will say. The, the whole birth of individualism and sort of Western individuality is going to be, be coming out of Luther's unique claim. 
Um, a third thing is going to happen immediately, and that is that the emperor is going to declare Luther guilty. He's going to excommunicate him, and he is going to say that he's sentenced to death. But the fourth thing that happens is that Luther flees almost immediately, and, um, and uh, he had been promised safe passage. Uh, that's, you know, why would he even go to this, uh, this meeting if he thinks he's going to be found guilty and killed, if, you know, if he doesn't absolutely have to. So he's promised safe passage there and back. However, Jan Hus had been promised safe passage there and back. Once the church had determined that Hus was a heretic, they said he has no rights, and he was um, you know, tied to the stake and, and killed. So now Luther, who's being called the Saxon Hus, uh, has been declared a heretic. So he's not going to wait around. He immediately, uh, off he goes, and um, he and his, uh, his little entourage, they hop on horses and start to race out of town. They don't go very far before they are overtaken by a bunch of armed men. And you have to think at this point that Luther believes he's finished. But the men that overtake him at kidnap Luther were actually sent by Frederick, the man with you know, three um, sur, sur titles. So he is Frederick the Wise, Frederick the Elector, uh, Frederick of Saxony. Frederick wants Luther to be kept alive. So he, he orders these people to kidnap Luther before anyone else can get to him. And then he says, don't tell me what you do with him. So uh, Luther is taken to a castle, Wartburg Castle. I've been there. If you're, if you're, gonna, if you're gonna track Luther at his 500th anniversary, you gotta go to the castle. So went to the castle and looked around and Luther was going to live there for a year. He's going to uh, take a different name. Nobody knows who he is. He's going to grow out, a, um, you know, grow out his hair, grow a beard, all these things. Uh, and he's going to be, um, I think he goes by the name of George. Um, but f- immediately after this, so uh, Charles, the emperor is, is, you know, sends people to have Luther arrested and they can't find him. And they keep going to Frederick. Where is he? And Frederick is able to say, I don't actually know where he is, which is true. He doesn't know where Luther is. So Luther is going to live in hiding in this castle in uh, Vortburg for a year. Um, by the way, growing out a beard was, uh, uh, you see all the reformers, Calvin, all these reformers have beards. Some of them have sort of ZZ top beards, right? They're, because this is, this is an act of rebellion. This is, you know, stick it to the man. Uh, monks were not supposed to have facial hair. So this is, I am, I am not a monk anymore. So he is going to, um, he is going to live, um, he is going to live with uh, these, at this castle for a year. And he's going to devote himself during that time um, to writing. And um, he's very prolific. So he's going to write a, a, a handful of very important theological works. But the big thing that he will undertake is translating the Bible uh, into German. And um, this is sort of in keeping with his whole push to say we've got to push, go back past the Latin Vulgate 
uh, and get get to something people can read. And we've got to go past the the traditions, the magisterium, all these councils, the the rulings of the Pope. We want to go back to the Bible. And uh, this is very important. For one thing, he's going to leave out the apocryphal books, which will be what reformers will do after that. Uh, Maccabees, you know, the, these books that are between the Old and New Testament. And he's going he's gonna to actually give the German language um, a text that is really massively going to end up influencing uh, German language everywhere. So um, it, it's really remarkable, by the way, that he gets all this done because he complains of poor health and insomnia and depression. Now, um, let me briefly summarize the rest of Luther's life, and then uh, we'll turn to this list of a handful of other points. So Luther... Uh, is going to hide out in this castle um, for a year. And then he's going to return to Wittenberg. And while he has been gone, and he's, of course, um, he's writing these things. People know that he's alive. They don't know where he's at, but he's writing. And um, um, he's, he is going to um, watch what happens in Wittenberg. And, and in Wittenberg, while he's gone, all his colleagues, you know, the University of Wittenberg, all his, uh, his brother monks there at the monastery, they're all going to um, embrace and push the Reformation. So priests are going to uh, start to dress in plain clothes and they're going to start to give their, their sermons, uh, you know, speak at the Mass um, in German so people can understand what's going on. Um, they're also going to not just share the bread. At this point, the, only the priests were allowed to partake of the cup. They're going to share the bread and the cup. Uh, priests are going to start to marry. Monasticism is going to be scrapped. Uh, fast days and the whole idea of saints and praying to the saints is all going to be pushed aside. Um, Luther is behind all of this. He's in favor of all of this. Then things are going to start to get violent. And at this point, Luther is going to decide that he's got to come back. So um, he's, he's sort of, he's not exactly safe coming back. I mean, there's a death sentence that uh, he's under. But by this point, uh, Charles, the emperor, has been uh, called out of country. and He's going to spend the next nine years fighting, uh, I think, against the French. And so uh, Luther is going to return uh, to Wittenberg, and he's going to devote himself at this point to, you know, sort of pushing the Protestant ideas. Now, um, he'll also sort of start to craft a church, what he thinks the church ought to look like, since it's not going to be Catholic. And this will, of course, eventually become the Lutheran church, uh, not called that at the time, called the Evangelical Church. Um, but he doesn't really want to, to franchise things, so all kinds of people now are going to begin reforming. All kinds of changes are going to be taking place. Again, this is part of what, uh, part of what uh, Charles had feared, that if you now have the church splitting, you've got, you've got all kinds of people that are going to move against the church because that's a way to move against the Holy Roman Empire. Or that's a way to get your independence. That's a way to stop paying taxes. That's a way to, to be free and independent. And it creates a lot of confusion. Um, so you're going to have lots of changes taking place. Luther doesn't actually try to be in charge of all of this. And so you're going to have lots of different uh, Protestant, so the word is a derivative of protest. You're going to have lots of different protesting 
churches that are part of the Reformation. And Reformation, just so you know, is sort of is seen as being a step past revival. So a revival is the initial, yes, I'm going to, I'm going to get right with God. I'm going to rededicate myself. I'm going to head down that path. Reformation means the, all of life is going to start to embrace this revival vibe and instincts. So denominations are going to get launched at this point because the Protestant reformers, uh, and we're going to you know, look at all these reformers, uh, Zwingli and Spainer and Calvin and all these people, they're, they're sort of going to go in different directions, which is what the Catholics had said was going to happen. Uh, you're going to have all these different interpretations of the Bible. You're not going to be able to agree. Well, what, what denominations speak to is saying, okay, we actually agree on everything that matters. So we'll look a little bit more at this uh, next time. But uh, we're going to agree on the big ticket items. And so we're going to elevate the Bible as our final source of authority. And we're going to elevate preaching. And we're going to uh, elevate and, and lock in around justification by faith alone, uh, in Christ alone. And uh, we're going to move away from the Latin and we're going to move away from Rome. So there's a bunch of things they're agreeing on. They're going to disagree on some things such as church governance. Do you have bishops? Do you have elders? Do you have congregational rule? We're gonna, they're going to disagree on the um, efficacy of the sacraments. Do you baptize infants or not? What exactly is happening during uh, when you take Holy Communion? And, um, and so Luther is going to have some um, outlying positions that actually no one is going to follow him on. His views on, on um, on communion, so the Catholic Church's view is called transubstantiation, that you know the real presence, uh, body and blood of Christ is going to be in after the after the the you know the words of of institution of the priests are actually going to be part of that. Many of the reformers are going to say no, this is a symbolic act entirely. Uh, the, the view that I've advocated is it's, it's not simply symbolic. There's some sacred activity here. It's a mystery. It's not, salvi not salvific at all, but this is a sacred activity. Luther's going to have a view that's sort of here. Um, so more than just sacred, he's going to have a view that's called contrasubstantiation. And to be honest, I don't understand it, so I'm not going to try and explain it. Um, but there's going to be lots of discussions with other reformers. Uh, he's going to get married. He's going to marry a woman uh, who'd been a nun. Uh, so he's going to try and you know, say to all these priests and, and nuns, you ought you to get married. Why wouldn't you get married? Marriage is good. Um, and so um, uh, lots of, of priests and nuns will leave the monasteries and the convents. Uh, one of them, Catherine von Bora, uh, a nun is going to be a woman that Luther will marry. Staupitz, who had been his confessor, who will remain Catholic, Staupitz will uh, release Luther from his monastic vows. He's going to marry Catherine. He calls her Kitty, Kitty my rib. And um, she's a remarkable woman, and there's much that could be said about her. Uh, he will, among other things, Luther will, will uh, speak against the peasants' rebellion. So a lot of the, the poor are going to rebel politically. 
And they're going to justify this by saying, we're free. <laughs> the gospel makes us free. And, uh, and so Luther's going to say, no, you're confused on this point. Uh, that's sort of controversial. Um, he's also going to be in, um, he's going to be in a debate with Erasmus um, over, over the human will. He's going to get in a debate with Zwingli over uh, communion. He's going to work with Melanchthon and write uh, what will become the Augsburg Confession, sort of the, the creed for the Lutheran Church. Um, and he's going to die in the, at, in the year 1546. Now, three other final things to say. Uh, as I wrap up, uh, first of all, as odd as this may sound, because Luther's obviously an enormously important, fascinating guy. He's a rock star during his life. Again, more books were written about Luther than about just about anyone else in the history of the world. Um, and he's, I haven't even talked about the fact that, you know, he gets into music and he starts turning, you know, the, the, the tunes of the, of the German pub beer songs into uh, hymns. So, a mighty fortress is our God is a hymn that Luther writes. Um, so, as, as many wonderful things as he, as he did, it, you can sort of look at the last 10 years of his life and say, hmm, sort of wish he would have died a little bit earlier. Um, for one thing, um, he's just going to say some reprehensible things about the Jews. Now he's also, um, he's gonna be training lots of people for uh, ministry and so he has all kinds of people over to his house. They really, uh, his wife is sort of an entrepreneur and you can almost argue a little bit of capitalism and this Protestant work ethic is gonna come out of her. Uh, they're, gonna, they're gonna turn their home into uh, sort of an expanding um, inn and uh, grow food and do all kinds of things. She's gotta come up with money. Um, but you read his table talk while he's got all these people in his house. You know, the people are just recording the dinner conversation. Some of it is wonderful and winsome and erudite and, and learned. And some of it is just Luther being really crass and vulgar. And he's sort of got junior high humor, you know. Uh, and, and so he's just, yeah, there's just a lot of things that Luther says. You're like, wow, didn't see that coming, um, except it's, not uncommon. You just don't think it until you start reading him. But junior high humor, you can sort of push aside. His comments about the Jews, he initially is very favorable to the Jews. He tries to win them over. When they don't sort of in mass come to the gospel, he gets really mad at them. And he says some things uh, about how the Germans ought to run the, Ger the Jews out of town and take all their money and all these things that the Nazis are going to use. Um, years later. So I went back to look this up. Um, when a number of parents huh, who are listening to Luther, you know, decry the uh, Catholic Church and call the Pope the Antichrist and all of this, when a number of them uh, pull their children out of the schools that the church is operating, Luther blasts them. Uh, rather than suggesting, you know, perhaps in a calm, rational, reasonable conversation that he, he thinks that he should, they should keep them in the school, um, he preaches a sermon, and in the context of the sermon, he says that those parents who have opted out of the school were, here's the quote, shameful, despicable, damnable parents who are no parents at all, but despicable hogs and venomous beasts devouring their own young. 
I thought local school board meetings were bad. I mean, uh, okay, Martin, I think could have done a little bit, been a little bit more civil and judicious than that. Uh, a second thing to note uh, is that Luther is, as a, is obvious by this quote, Luther can be very entertaining to read. However, he's not a very systematic thinker. So you don't have, like you're going to get with Calvin and some of the others, very organized, thoughtful, I'm picking a topic and I'm developing it. You sort of get Luther's stream of consciousness, and it can be brilliant. It's just stream of consciousness. Um, the last thing that I'll say... Uh, just coming out of Luther is to note the need for the church to always be reforming. It's not like, you know, the church left, left the tracks uh, in the late Middle Ages and needed to be reformed, and now it's good. No, it, it, you know, the church needs to be reformed every day. Uh, the church is made up of people like you and me, broken people. Uh, there is no perfect church. If you find a perfect church, don't join it because you, my friend, are not perfect, and so it would cease to be perfect once you showed up. But uh, the church is in constant need of repentance and reformation. Well, in our next, in our third and final uh, podcast on the Reformation, we're going to uh, look at uh, the five solas, and uh, I will leave you at that point.